Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration, may it only last for two more fucking weeks. Well, it will go till at least January 21st. So yeah, well, or whatever. I know, but I, I I have hope at that point, you know. I Yes. I am Mary. Um, I'm a lawyer and I podcast from home. I also have kids who are currently out, but we were writing so they may show up and cause noise. Hopefully not. <laughs> Yeah. And hi, everyone. I'm Lee. I am an academic, a rhetorician. I study rhetoric, the rhetorics. And we are on Twitter, FYI, never forget, at Court Pod. And I uh, am also podcasting from home and just have cats and they have been told to be quiet. So in this episode, we've got a doozy for you today. We are diving into one of my favorite questions, which is the question of communication. And this is really the question that's been driving us nuts all season, which is how is the new right coordinating this massive court taker. Shit. Mass, massive court takeover. I mean, you see, I get all worked up. I mean, you got all these politicians, judges, big money donors. Where's the paper trail? You've got 80, 5-4 Supreme Court decisions in favor of corporate interests. And that is all of the court cases about corporate interests in favor of them. How are they managing to get all on the same page with absolutely no record of meetings, no, you know, exposed conspiracies in the sense of like, you know, Watergate? And all of this money exchanging hands with all that stuff happening. So here's the theory. So Mary calls it coded communication. And so essentially it's the money, you know, the power, communicates to the foot soldiers. And by foot soldiers, we're talking McConnell, Trump, Supreme Court justices, uh, Leonard Leo, right? All the people you think are at the height of power, but actually they're bowing to the money. And in this episode, we're going to lay out how we think they're doing this with these three cornerstones of that communication code. Signaling, auditioning, amicus briefs. And so, Mary, you kind of brought this to my attention that all this stuff is happening and that we, we sort of need to understand how it's happening. But why can't they just like have a Zoom meeting every week and just plan what they're going to say? I mean, who knows? Maybe they are doing that. I, we don't know that they aren't. But if you're in a conspiracy, then one way to not seem like you're in a conspiracy is to not have that meeting. Right. And a conspiracy can happen just by saying, watch Fox News. And I think that the power brokers like Coke want this to be secret. I mean, that's what we've learned. They have been secretly doing this for like 40 years. And now that secrecy has been blown out of the water. But, you know, through these 40 years, basically my whole life, the Democrats have been totally asleep at the wheel. So essentially what they've been creating is this back channel of communication. And, you know, it's what Trump was accused of having... Putin that he wanted to have or was open to having a back channel communication with Putin. It's something outside of what can be monitored. So you'll have pundits looking at Trump and saying like, well, you know, he just watches cable news and does whatever they say. Yeah, but what if that's the plan? Not that he's just an idiot, but that there's coordination here. 
Look at Trump when he is talking to Bob Woodward. Now, Bob Woodward, he's a Washington Post reporter. He just published a new book called Rage. And in it, he did, you know, like 16, 18 interviews with Trump. And so he's been researching Trump for the book. He asked him to be on tape. Trump agreed to be on tape. And from those tapes, it's clear that Trump is not as big of an idiot as he comes across at his rallies or, you know, at his press conferences. He is able to carry on a higher level of conversation when he chooses to. Now, you know, I also think that there's cognitive decline there. I think that's also obvious. But he is... You know, when you listen to the Bob Woodward tapes, he is much more cogent and he knows certainly a lot more about evading taxes than I do. And that requires at least an understanding beyond what gets shown to the public. Now, all criminal conspiracies like the mob and he has and he and his administration have been compared to the mob. And I think it's a very apt comparison. They're looking for plausible deniability. That's what this coded communication is. It gives them cover that they're not really trying to overthrow democracy, that, you know, people are kind of acting this way out of their own free will, that they're not being paid, they're not taking orders. Yeah. So it sounds like, this is interesting. So it sounds like if I'm understanding you correctly, two things are happening. First is that the coded communication that we think is going on, that we sort of have, you know, there is some evidence that it's happening. It runs up against a lot of what language experts believe to be true about language, which is that it evolves at a community level. So a basic principle of communication is that it tends to be relatively organic. So like Urban Dictionary, right? You don't have a lot of people pushing words from the top down. So that leaves us unequipped to understand a situation where there's like kind of language covert ops happening in the sense that the communication is very top down, but our common sense mythology is so out of touch. Yeah, and the 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 power brokers, Coke and all yeah. them, they want it to seem organic. They want right. it to seem like conservative people, regular people, your conservative uncle, that they're the ones that are pushing this. They want it to look like it's a grassroots um, movement when it is completely top down. Oh, so there's actually a word for this. It's called astroturf organizing. And so it's like the Tea Party was and is, like because let's not pretend... 2016 isn't a direct Tea Party outcome. But the Tea Party fronts, like it's all populist and the people led it. And you remember like all the rallies and they had all the signs and stuff. But it's just so obviously and it, it has been exposed repeatedly for being deeply funded by coordinated coordinated big power. So it, like grassroots astroturf, that, that's the joke. Right, right. And when you read uh, Jane Mayer's Dark Money, the this groundbreaking book that she wrote about the Koch Foundation and Charles Koch and his and his you know forty year plan, then you realize that Obama's election was kind of like napalm for these this these donor people. You know they were they were absolutely outraged. And again, you got to go back and realize Koch's father was one of the founders of the John Birch Society, which is a deeply racist organization. So racism in the Koch Foundation, in the Koch family, it runs it runs super deep. I mean, it is it is a foundational principle. Maybe they won't, don't put it out there like on their website, but it is really what they're organized around in a lot of ways. And that whole network was 
outraged that we had a black president. And that is what and that is what spurred these these meetings uh, of ultra ultra rich. And he, you know, created this basically a political, a private political bank to push back. Well, yeah, and let, and also like just thinking about what we talked about in a previous episode um, with uh, Ian Haney, Haney Lopez's merge left. It, it, whether they were outraged or not, which probably lots of them were, it's also right, racism is about profit. So even if they weren't inherently like outraged, they knew racism is a great way to get everybody focused on something that ha- that is actively working against their common interest and letting the big money donors take over. And also, you know, from another from another book, I'm reading for an interview coming up called Irony and Outrage by uh, Donald Young, communications professor, talking about comedy and news radio over the last few years and how Fox News conservative talk shows skyrocketed in profits when Obama came into power. I mean, he was just a money machine for these people. And then, this is interesting, Glenn Beck, who was like a cornerstone of this racist, outrage, conservative, new right radio culture, recently went on Full Frontal with Samantha B, who's a liberal comic, formerly of The Daily Show, a news pundity type person, like a like a like John Stewart, right? And he apologized because of the horrifying role he now knows and admits to playing in that period in American history that is just like directly led to our current cesspool. And beyond all that, so even if you can't fathom that communication could be coordinated in this way at this high level, one of the other reasons people are so out of touch is that we just don't get the money. Heaps and gobs of money that are driving things. Like we just, the average person just can't fathom it. Well, I mean, we can't fathom it because we don't have anything close to kind, that kind of disposable money. I mean, you know, we're, we're struggling to pay our bills and, you know, that stuff is all by design. So there's a reason why we can't fathom that kind of money. I mean, it, it's really been the piece of this whole enterprise that is that has taken me the longest to try to wrap my head around. I also kind of ignore it. Money makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like my student loans. I don't like to think about, I pay them on time. I have been for 18 years. I don't like to think about how much I still owe because right. it is debilitating. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's a normal thing. Now, I really... Part of what, you know, got me to understand this more what is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Um, he recently was speaking about the 85 to 4 cases that have come up through the Roberts court. Yeah, and quick reminder. So White House is a Democrat from Rhode Island who's, uh, you know, been fighting the good fight against captured courts. He's like, you know, a true believer, the opposite of the super corrupt, like a righteous zealot for democracy. And uh, Mary told me that his family... They were like in the Secret Service, so he's just like a justice spy. <laughs> oh my god! Um, all right, so his work—he's uh, kind of been the most focused on what's been going on in the courts, and he splits. He's looked at and analyzed, and you know, as a as a former prosecutor, he's a lawyer. He gets all of all of uh, the law, and he has categorized the eighty. 80- Supreme Court cases uh, that have gone 5-4, and he categorizes them into four groups. Voting in democracy, undermining the civil jury, unlimited dark money spending in politics, and the weakening of regulatory agencies. And, you know, let's listen to uh, Senator Whitehouse speak on this. What's behind us is now 80 cases, Mr. Chairman, 80 
cases under Chief Justice Roberts that have these characteristics. One, they were decided five to four by a bare majority. Two, the five to four majority was partisan in the sense that not one Democrat, Democratic appointee joined the five. I refer to that group as the Roberts Five. It changes a little bit as with Justice Scalia's death, for instance, but there's been a steady Roberts Five that has delivered now 80 of these decisions. And the last characteristic of them is that there is an identifiable Republican donor interest in those cases. And in every single case, that donor interest won. It was an 80 to zero, five to four partisan route, ransacking. All right, so the dark money donors, they don't want a paper trail on this. They don't want records of meetings. They don't want records of coordination. So Leonard Leo, remember Leonard Leo, he was the head of the Federalist Society. Uh, He claims he stepped away from the Federalist Society. That's a lie. He is currently listed as their co-chair. He, again, is the brainchild behind Trump's Supreme Court nominees list. In fact, he was kind of outsourced to him. Um, And also Carrie Severino of the Heritage Foundation, which is Koch-funded. Now, FYI, Leo was just found to be spearheading an additional dark money corporation worth $80 million. So in all of this uh, effort by journalists and, and uh, you know, Democratic politicians to kind of figure out what's going on with the money, there was a whole other corporation, mind you, that doesn't do anything, has no employees, yet took in $80 million. And Leonard Leo is basically the only guy in that corporation. Interesting. So why do they work so hard to stay anonymous? I think that's a fair question. It's something that we've been trying to wrap our heads around. And the consensus between people looking at it is basically that donors, they fear public criticism, plain and simple. They know that they or their companies are going to face repercussions for funding unpopular self-serving positions like gutting environmental protections destroying our water to drink, slamming the courthouse door on workers' rights and consumers, you know, hey, whatever, we can create and sell products that hurt you and we don't want to be responsible for that. Um, So they're looking for other people to cover up their blatant conflicts of interest. And if they can't do it, they can't do this explicitly, okay? They can't risk this paper trail. So This is how the right network achieves this miraculous, unanimous set of 5-4 decisions. How do they do this? They do it by coded communication, signaling, auditioning, and amicus briefs. Okay, here's the theory. And again, I want to put it out there that they could be easily directly communicating with these people and telling them what to do as well. Um, I have no idea whether they are or they aren't. But I do think that they're using Fox News and conservative media to get messages out. And it would be just as easy for Koch to call up Rupert Murdoch and feed the system that way. Then it would be, then they get to also, you know, write a story and a piece and put it out to all their different hosts. And there you go. Yeah. And the benefit of that would also be what you were saying as like voter public buy-in, right? Because if you're behind closed doors trying to re-engineer the way people think about the very popular concepts that they use in their everyday lives, then you can't just suddenly introduce new meanings and uses and have people be like, oh, okay, it means that now. So if you distribute it to the foot soldiers as it is being distributed to the plebs, then you've got maximum efficacy. And by plebs, you just mean regular people like us. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The plebes, uh-huh, the plebeians. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- yes, exactly. And 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 this is this is absolutely the point. Now, Vox, uh, the journalism uh, outfit, wrote an article about conservatives buying up local media, Sinclair Media, buying up local stations, and they're also uh, I don't know if it's Sinclair, but they're also buying up local. Uh, local newspapers as you know they're getting defunded by people not subscribing to them they're being consolidated in by this conservative media and you know you're used to but you still have your local anchors and your local reporters and you trust them you've grown up with them you've known them you know your whole life but now you have a conservative media outlet like Sinclair giving them these pieces that they are required to read. And these pieces are nationwide. So they're co-opting your local homegrown newscaster to spew out this nationalized conservative propaganda. And they're doing that also, again, with print media in your town. Yeah, it comes back to this thing we've been saying all along, which is that the public conception of how the media works, how the courts work, how political language works is so disconnected from what is happening right now. And it's benefiting the Republicans because they get all of the benefits of localism, right? The assumptions of localism and impartiality and all that stuff while they are doing just horrifying fascist shit. Yeah. And that's some evil, brilliant shit because it is people. <laughs> people, Right. I mean, why would you pay attention to this stuff? You're just not anticipating that this is going to happen. It's and it's because it's new. It's a new way of invading a society. Yes, but aren't you lucky to have come to our podcast? So let's get to the nitty gritty about how this works in practice. So we've kind of come up with like the three, the three strategy, the three big strategies: signaling, auditioning, and amicus briefs. Okay, take it away, Mary. Okay, signaling kind of comes first if you need somewhere to start because we all consume media, whether it's coming out of Fox News and you and you gleefully consume it or it you kind of absorb it because you hear about this like, oh my God, can you believe they said this? So you're also absorbing that as well. And signaling is kind of like this coordination of how different terms and language like liberty or courage from our previous episode are getting redistributed and recoded to coordinate the efforts of the GOP. Now, I listen to pundits. I, li- I listen to a lot of them talk about Trump, and they talk about him like he's like he's some kind of grandpa that sits there and watches Fox News, and you know, and then they say, well, when he comes out with some crazy policy, they'll be like, well, you know, he, they, if did you hear they said that before earlier today on Fox and Friends or you know whatever show he's probably listening to because apparently Trump watches like an obscene amount of television for somebody who's trying to like lead the free world. So even liberal pundits portray Trump as some kind of like adult, a dummy who's just like regurgitating talking points that are coming from Fox News. But what do we know? We know that right-wing media is highly coordinated. They come out with a story, and it is all over the place. Tucker, Hannity, Maria Barta, Philosophy, whatever her name is. You know, it is everywhere. Fox and Friends. And as soon as an episode comes out, all of the all of their their media people are on point saying the same thing. I think to myself. 
Obviously, that level of coordination is coming from a central hub. There is no possible way that all of these shows have the same message if it isn't centralized. Who runs Fox? The Murdochs. They're media oligarchs. They are deep in with all of the right-wing coke money. It's the same network, you know, the Mercers, the Devosses. They're all deep. I never knew these names before, before you know, Trump. And I, I wish I didn't know about them. Although it's important to know who is out there with disposable income who are trying to pull the strings controlling all of us. And I don't think that it is far-fetched to think that the president is listening intentionally to get all of this information. This is a way that the oligarchs can speak directly to him and to the people that they're trying to influence. Now, I have not found anybody out there writing about this. I don't find reporting on it. And I think that's probably because they don't have a source. So, you know, am I speculating here? Yes, I'm speculating. Um, but it doesn't come from nothing. You know, what I I would love to know whether or not this is happening. I would, I would frankly, I'd love to be wrong. But we would need to have a whistleblower on the media end or on, you know, in within the Trump orbit, you know, to kind of confirm what's going on and that we don't see that right now. Um, but I think it's useful to think about the fact that this is a possibility when you're listening to a highly coordinated media outlet that, you know, maybe what Trump is doing isn't just being an old man, you know, that we know we have a highly coordinated top-down conspiracy, and I don't think that it's helpful to think of Trump as some blithering idiot because he doesn't know any better. I think it's, I think it, we should at least consider the possibility that this is he is part of this highly coordinated effort because thinking of him as an idiot, I don't think is true, and I don't think that it's helpful. All right, now the second thing that I wanted to talk about is auditioning. Now, auditioning is related, but different. If signaling is how the media coordinates the money and the politicians, then auditioning is how conservative lawyers and judges signal back to the money how they're going to say, hey, dark money, I'm going to sell out democracy for you, but to do it without a paper trail. So auditioning is the way that judges are signaling to the money, pick me. I'm going to be on your team. It's like kind of like uh, how you would rush a sorority. Yeah, fraternity, let's be real. Oh, yeah, right. <sighs> I forget, I forget, because we're both girls. So I think, <laughs> I think, I don't, I don't, I, I have to remember like how incredibly white and male um, they have, the Trump administration has made government and the courts. All right. Um, so judges, judges are using quoted communication. They're writing decisions or dissents um, if they're at the appellate level that says, you know, like, I'm for your issues. I don't care how much of a jackass I make of myself. I don't I don't even care if this issue is relevant. I'm just going to let you, the money, know in this opinion that I'm writing that you can count on me to do your bidding. Now, what I'm dying to know is whether these people are just stupid or whether they're bought off. I don't know that. I'm dying to know that. But unfortunately, there is no mechanism to monitor uh, whether judges are being paid. There's no there's no financial disclosure requirements. Um, 
judges there are not monitored. And I think that maybe that made sense in the past, but given what we know about the incredible amounts of dark money funneling into, uh, you know, affect judges, I think we should probably be instituting uh, regular financial disclosures for judges. Yeah. So, um, so back in July on Twitter, so Sheldon Whitehouse wrote that an appellate judge had told him, had told Whitehouse, quote, that this judge now sees other judges auditioning, which means writing decisions not on facts and law, not to do justice among parties, but to signal their availability and reliability, end quote. And then White House concludes, quote, Kavanaugh, our friend Brett Kavanaugh, was an auditioning champion. Look where he got. Yeah, and and this has been a big question. It was a big question that never got answered. But who's paying your bills, Kavanaugh? Who bought your house? We know what your salary is. How are you living as large as you are? We, we deserve to know whether you have been actually paid by dark money. And, you know, those questions about, about his finances were never answered. I don't think judges should be living large. You know, if you want to live large, if you want to, you know, have all the money then and get the perks, then get off the bench. Go into private practice. It is incredibly easy to sell your soul as an attorney. You do not need to do it on the bench. Anyway, so back to auditioning. A little, I digress. Auditioning is writing decisions, not focusing on the facts or on the law. It's a decision that is signaling to Republican donors that we will give you what you want and it doesn't really matter what the facts are or what the you know prior laws have stated. You know, it's saying we're we're going to give you what you want. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think of uh, what any of the many Amy Coney Barrett examples of this obviously being what she's doing. She just keeps signaling. So in her grossly short for a Supreme Court justice appointee career, how willing she is to just fuck over ethics and democracy in favor of corporate interests. Uh, so earlier this, I think last week, like in the middle of October, Salon, another news outlet, reported that while she was an appellate court judge, Barrett voted to overturn a district court ruling that found a county in Wisconsin, quote, liable for millions in damages to a woman who alleged she had been repeatedly raped by a jail guard. Here's a direct quote from Kyle Herrig, who is president of a watchdog group um, called Accountable. Quote, after a 19-year-old pregnant prison inmate was repeatedly raped by a prison guard, Amy Coney Barrett ruled that the county responsible for the prison could not be held liable because the sexual assaults fell outside of the guard's official duties her judgment demonstrates a level of unconscionable cruelty that has no place on the high court, which is just like the understatement of the fucking century. That part's not in the quote. That's my sentence. And it, honestly, this is so upsetting there because there's 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 no recourse. And where there's a crime, where 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 exactly? I'm sorry. Is a crime part of somebody's job description? I mean, it, it never is. It's never going to be part of somebody's job description. So you're creating a circumstance that allows for anything like this to happen, which is that's exactly what they did. And it's just like, OK, here where she's she's saying 
they're not liable. They don't have to pay damages. Nothing can be done to, uh, to make any, an attempt to remedy, you know, the situation for this, this poor inmate. By the way, again, she can't consent to it. She's not, you're not capable of consent because the power differential is so great when you're a prisoner and there's a guard. Uh, I cannot think of a more outrageous example. Um, and you, I want to remind you that she has only been a judge and appellate. She was appointed to an appellate level for, she's only been judged for three years. So she went straight to a federal court of appeals. That's a very, very high level to be. It's again, it's one step below the Supreme court, which she was, uh, you know, nominated to be. So she's, so, I mean, what a, just a, just a rocket ship to the top. Um, Amy Coney Barrett has had. And, and when she was accepting her, her uh, nomination by the president, she, in her speech, she said she was accepting it um, with humility and courage. Courage, that word again, that uh, we heard so much about before that they were looking for. They were looking for uh, nominees that would demonstrate courage. And, uh, you know, I submit to you that giving a decision like this is her auditioning, her showing courage that, that, you know, regardless of how outrageous this fact pattern is, she's going to rule for the money and against the people. All right. Now, that's not the only example. There is also our friend, Judge Gorsuch. Uh, he, he had a case which is uh, known as the Ice Road Trucker case. In this case, there was a truck driver who was driving and he had to pull over because the roads were super unsafe and his truck couldn't move. It was bitter cold and his engine uh, stopped working. So his choice, uh, and so he couldn't couldn't run the heat. There was, you know, it was, he was going to either freeze to death or he had to abandon his truck and try to get help. So he did. He abandoned his truck and he did go back for it later. But the company fired him anyway because he left the truck. So, you know, essentially his choices were like get fired or die. I mean, what are you what are you going to do? Right. I'm going to I mean, he's not going to have a paycheck either way. Right. So Gorsuch found that, yeah, no, it was okay for you to be fired. That's fine. Too bad. Uh, He did a very strict what he would consider a literal interpretation of the law and did not care about the fact that he was it was the, the guy would have had to die in order to keep his job which is of course ridiculous and this is seen as like a positive case for him in the eyes of you know the right-wing donors again another example of an audition because republican donors they they're they don't want you to be on the bench and to, you know, suddenly be swayed by the facts like a human being would. They don't want you to be compassionate to the plaintiffs where they would then and then require the company to pay money. So they want you to to say, you know, whatever, regardless of the situation, whether it's rape, whether it's murder, we're going to rule for the corporation. So these are, you know, two extreme examples. I think the most extreme examples, it's like, well, okay, die for corporate America or corporate America can literally rape you. And Gorsuch and Coney Barrett are like, yep, that is how we are going to rule. So, 
you don't really need back channels for this. You just kind of can put it on the news. You can just signal to the president. That's how you do it through these types of decisions. And also sometimes they do it through their dissents. So, you know, you may not like the left, but they're the only ones who are going to give a shit about your rights. So vote Biden. Vote Biden. (laughs) It's not too late. And he just got out out fundraised, so I'm getting all the emails about with the panic time. And while you're at it, uh, elect Mark Kelly, please, and get rid of Mitch McConnell because I can't even. I would take I, honestly, I'd take one of the, I'd take one of them at least. All right, so we, let's see. So we've talked about signaling, we've talked about auditioning, and I think that brings us then to uh, kind of your wheelhouse, the, your fancy wheelhouse, which are these amicus briefs, which I knew nothing about um, prior to having started this conversation. Yeah, because why would anybody who isn't a lawyer, uh, you know, or even frankly isn't a litigator, know about amicus briefs? Nobody would. Now, all right, so once this is a situation where the judges, the the right-wing judges are now on the team, they are installed in the courts, and there needs to be a mechanism for the donors to tell the judges what they want. Because it's payback time, right? You, We gave you the job. Now you got to pay us back. Now you're on the team. You pay us back. And the payback, as we've seen, is this, are the 85-4 Roberts Court decisions and counting. I say 80, but they're counting. And we have a Supreme Court that's coming up, and there are a lot of paybacks on the line. Now, again, referring to Sheldon Whitehouse, he and uh, some reporters and, and watchdog agencies have figured out that the dark money also funds the plaintiffs that bring these cases forward that the courts are going to get to decide on. They choose and pay for the plaintiffs. They pay for their lawyers, which is very expensive. They also fund what White House calls like a chorus of amici, amicus briefs, which are a, a bunch, several amicus briefs. All right. And let's let's just listen to White House again. This more and more looks Like, it's not three schemes, but it's one scheme with the same funders selecting judges, funding campaigns for the judges, and then showing up in court in these orchestrated amicus flotillas to tell the judges what to do. Now, amicus briefs, they are supposed to be friends of the court. So that's what amicus brief means. It's a friend of the court. And you're supposed to be somebody who has a stake in the litigation. So what you do is you take the fact pattern, you write out the facts in a way that you find most persuasive. And, you know, I don't know if they're telling the truth. You're supposed to tell the truth of the way you, you the way you frame the facts, but it's framed in a, in a persuasive way. And then you also take the law and you craft a legal argument that is persuasive using the facts, and that is the way you are arguing that the case should be decided. Now, I worked for an agency, uh, the governmental agency that represented Child Protective Services, and there's there was litigation in New York about whether parents who are getting their parental rights terminated should be able to still have contact with their kids if the judge in the case determined that they should be able to do that, gave them permission. Now, there's lots of complicated reasons for and against, you know, uh, allowing parents to have contact with with uh, kids to have contact with parents whose rights needed to be terminated. So again, I worked for the government. We represented CPS and they wrote a friend of the court brief, an amicus brief about why this wouldn't be helpful for the, the children or the adoptive parents. 
So CPS wasn't a part of the wasn't a part of the case, but they did have a, it would affect them. They they had to they have to try to find adoptive parents for kids whose parents have been parental rights have been terminated. So they are affected by this outcome. That's why they could write a friend of the court brief. So that's just an example of, you know, a, a legitimate friend of the court brief. So all these dark money groups claim to have a stake in these cases, but they're actually funded. They're actually funded by the same pool of pro-corporate donor money. So there's this variety of groups that are being paid to write these briefs, and they're all arguing on the same side. It's totally incestuous. It's So it sounds like there's all of these different groups that are saying the same thing. They're like, we all agree with the same position, but it's all being funded by the same dark money pool. So it's it's could be even because it's dark money, we don't know. It could actually be literally be one person that is funding all of this. And there's no mechanism in place where they have to disclose to the judges that they're all being funded by the same, possibly the same person, or at least the same, the same group of people. And I don't even know if that's necessarily I don't even know that you need to, to, to act like there has to be this disclosure. I highly doubt that these conservative justices are confused as to who's funding these. I mean, they all go to the Federalist Society speaking events. They were chosen by the Federalist Society. So, you know, my guess is that they are somewhat aware of this anyway. But as far as how to specifically look at a case... That's where these amicus can actually just kind of hand them the legal theories that are being that are being funded and pushed by the donor class. Now, these think tanks are also funded. These think tanks that are writing these these amicus briefs are funded by the dark money and the, and the judges. They don't really have to do a whole lot of work. They can look at these briefs and just adopt these positions. Um, it's kind of. It is. It's spoon feeding them what legal arguments uh, the donor classes want them to use. So a friend of the court briefs are supposed to be a good thing, but, you know, it's something that has been really co-opted and perverted by dark money. Yeah. So the Senate, in a report, the Senate Democrats, you know, spearheaded by White House, found that the, this is just one example of, of these amici briefs, that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has filed at least 448 amicus briefs in the Supreme Court since John Roberts became Chief Justice in, uh, Chief Justice in 05. Right. And out of those uh, 440 amicus briefs in those cases, they have like a 70% win rate. So like they 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 won 70% of the cases. That's that's pretty crazy. Um I wish I could say that uh, my defense had a 70% win rate. It does not. <laughs> the defense uh, does not win 70% of the time. Um, now, in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, we don't know what businesses are. in. They, they just, this is kind of just their brand, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which represents businesses. But we don't know who those businesses are. Um, you know, at the very least, they seem to be a pro-corporate trade group. Um, they're also the largest lobbying organization in the U.S., and they spend nearly one and a half billion dollars on lobbying the federal government over the last two decades. Um, and they campaigned very loudly to get Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. All right. And there's also uh, another example of an amicus brief 
that had a very uh, important role in an opinion that was written by Justice Alito, another uh, right-wing stalwart. So this case was Hernandez versus Mesa. It's about a border patrol agent who shot a 15-year-old Mexican boy who was across the border. Um, he was in he was in Mexico, but it was like he was feet away from the U.S. border. I mean, it was he was kind of running back and forth and with a bunch of kids, and they were throwing rocks. And this border patrol agent just just shot him, just shot him and killed him. So. You know, it's murder either way. It doesn't really, it's, it's definitely murder. That's that's not a, a question. But the legal question was whether his feder- his family could sh- sue the federal agent for violating the Constitution. And the conservative majority is like, absolutely not. The boy's in Mexico. Even though if he was like just a couple feet closer, then they, were, they would have said, yes, he could sue. And the dissent is like, well, it doesn't really matter because the U.S. agent was behaving outside of the constitution so the family should be able to sue which if you can if you think back to Amy, Amy Coney Barrett she said the exact opposite of that she's like well if they're outside of the job description basically then they're SOL mm. so you know uh, i i heard a great discussion of this case on the 5-4 podcast which is a progressive supreme court podcast i highly recommend it's very entertaining and they had Professor Steve Vladek on. He's a professor who argued this case. Um, and he was arguing, you know, for the family. And the, he was talking about the oral argument. He said that the officer, the Border Patrol officer, was represented by a private attorney who gave one of the worst advocacy performances in Supreme Court history. I don't think he said that, but it was said. And uh, he did not uh, he did not dispute that. But the government, the U.S. government, who was represented by the DOJ, had joined the case as a friend of the court. And they put in a brief. And Alito, in his decision, he really didn't rely on any of the arguments made by the agent's attorney. He relied and parroted the arguments made by the DOJ. So he used essentially the DOJ's amicus brief as his arguments for the decision. So there, this is my, (laughs) this is my boom, you know, this is where you can see how they are, you know, and again, of course, the DOJ is not, uh, I'm not saying that the DOJ is Coke funded or dark money funded, but there are bars in there. I mean, at, at this point, with it's it's not the same type of independent agency that we have had before. Barr has ruined that. So, you know, the challenge that we have, and and and, the, and and I and I commend you for even listening to this to this episode because the challenge in fighting the stealth plan is that it requires a ton of explanation and and a, and a ton of attention and and resources um, for regular people to try to see what's going on. And the the donors and the GOP are banking on the electorate not having any energy to look at this. And they're also banking on, on, on left-leaning academics being totally uncoordinated. Spoiler alert, we are. Um, so that's the difficulty. And from a philosophical standpoint, you know, it's kind of like, well, so what? So what if the right is coordinated and they're networked? Is there anything unconstitutional about that? And I think the answer would be no if the right weren't actually trying to suppress everyone on the other side who's trying to exercise their right to vote and to affect how they're governed. If, I mean, it, it, 
really, you can look at this and argue that it's a coup that's taking place, that they are they, that they are taking away democracy and putting in something different in it that, you know, has the kind of the, the shell of democracy, but that's not actually what's going on. And we're not looking at a level exchange of ideas with the right and the left, you know, and, and if you, if that was the case, then you might be okay. Then, you know, both sides would be okay with democracy and with majority rules. They would, the, the two ideas would fight it out. And then in the voting booth, we would choose what we wanted. But the right, the Coke, the dark money, they are not okay with the majority ruling. They're not okay with putting their ideas into the marketplace and seeing how the voters, what the voters choose. And these dark money donors, they feel aggrieved by any demand made by the people. And by any demand, I mean paying taxes. That's what they mean. And they give zero acknowledgement of what the people have given them and what they, the donors, have taken from the people. So, you know... All of this is to say that these judges are not upholding their oath to the Constitution. And I think that we should consider whether we could bring attorney grievances to state licensing boards seeking to get these judges who are doing Republican donor biddings out of the profession. I don't think that they should be on the bench uh, if they're not actually listening to cases and, you know, they're just doing what the donors say. I don't think that that is upholding their constitutional oath. So, you know, Senator Whitehouse has a, a bunch of reforms. I think they're good, but I don't think they go far enough. I think we need to look, I think we need laws to look at judges' finances, uh, to, to have to give mandatory disclosure requirements for judges and their close associates. I don't, I don't think we should be okay with, with gifts flowing to them through family members. We know that Justice Thomas had a, his wife, was directly benefit her, you know, her foundation or directly benefited from Citizens United. That's not cool. I think that's corrupt. Um, and you're going to be hearing a lot of, if you're paying attention, you're going to be hearing a lot of people talking about court reform, about rebalancing the courts by increasing the number of judges at all federal levels. And that's, that's what needs to be done at a minimum. Um, at a minimum, we need to rebalance the courts uh, from all of the court packing that's been done by dark money funded uh, GOP um, GOP arms and tentacles that have been, you know, getting into our courts. <laughs> the octopus administration is what we should talk about it, like literally and physically, right? Because it's also the administration where he groped and sexually assaulted multiple women. All right. Well, as always, we have just spent almost an hour bringing you a lot of bad news, but hopefully some good news in the sense that like it's happening whether you know it or not. And at least if you're going into it, eyes wide open, you have some hope. So with that said, we are, oh gosh, two weeks away from an election, y'all, that is just too crucial. So get to the voting polls, um, to the voting booths. Don't trust, you know, the polls look good, but you can't rely on the polls that Biden's just going to sweep. I'd like to remind everybody that there were polls that had Hillary Clinton ahead by 30 points. Uh, when Trump beat her in 2016 and, you know, let people know, let people know to get out there. And in terms of our podcast, Mayor, we are, this is episode nine. We're bringing episode 10 to you next week, which will be about the myth of originalism and that bullshit that's just been for sale to support all kinds of heinous ass decisions. And then we'll be wrapping after the election, uh, hopefully 
with good news. So come and find us on Twitter at Court Pod so we can celebrate or commiserate depending on what November looks like. And other than that, we hope that everyone is staying physically distanced but socially connected. And Mary, do you want to say anything else? Wear your masks. Wear your your goddamn masks and vote for Biden. And we will talk to all of you soon. Take care. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.